most of you understand at this point that, uh, you know, I've been doing this. Someone mentioned to me the other day how what a phenomenal thing is that she'd been preaching for, tw- for 50 times a year for 27 years. And it really is an amazing thing to me. And let me just tell you, it amazes me far more than it does you. Because let me tell you something. I have grown to love it more and more and more and more and let me tell you something you need to understand something that it is a grueling thing to do I mean it just is there's a couple of guys in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about you you can imagine what it's like to preach but let me tell you something until you do it you don't have a clue you just really don't But either God is in the preaching or he's not. And if God's not in it, then it's not preaching. Maybe talking, maybe encouraging, it may be doing this and it may be doing that. But it's not preaching the word of God. God has to be center to all of this. And at the very best, we are just simply human beings being used by God as his mouthpiece. And that is an awesome thing. But we're going to be turning this morning to uh, the chapter or chapter 8 in the gospel according to John. Uh, and just bef- before we even begin this, I want to address something that you may be aware of or you may not be aware of. And that is this is the story of the, adult, of the woman caught in adultery and brought to Jesus by, by the Pharisees and everything that transpires as a result of that. But I just want you to understand something, that this is one of the rare cases where we have a particular passage that does not appear in some of the very earliest copies of the Gospel of John that we have. This is an area that those who want to prove to you that the Bible is not inerrant, is not the gift of God given to his people. This is one of those passages that they will focus on. They will say, to, here, your Bible says this, but it wasn't there originally. In other words, this has been added to these so precious scriptures that you believe is God speaking to you. So what explanation would you have if someone challenged you with that? And this is one of the reasons I'm saying this this morning. So you won't be unprepared when someone comes to you if they do and they present this to you and you're going, oh, I didn't know that. So what is, what is the possible explanation you could come up with? Well, you could agree with them and say, well, you must be right. I've been wrong all along. You've proven it to me. My Bible's not inerrant. Therefore, if this is in question, what about the rest of it? Well, we understand this, that we do not, listen to me, we do not have the original copy of John in our possession today. We could and not even know it. But there's a definite possibility that we do not. What we have are copies of copies of copies. 
And as much as we know that the Bible itself is inspired, we do not understand that those who do the copying are equally inspired by God. In other words, that they are now, because of some special act of God, are suddenly become inerrant themselves. That they're incapable of making the same kinds of errors that people generally would when they copied one thing from another and that sort of thing. There are still people just like you and I. Those who transcribed the scriptures were people just like Bucky and Maybell and Keith. Capable of making human errors. And so on occasion you will see things like this rise up. So what are possible explanations? Well, one would be that this is just some made-up story that somebody inserted it in here later on down the road a little bit. Do you believe that? I don't believe that for one minute. The most likely thing is this. Is that at some point there was someone copying the gospel according to John, and for some reason they accidentally skipped over this part of it? And then that copy that they made, others used it, they copied it, and so on and so on and so on. And before you know it, this is something that is there. But one of the things I want to say to you is this, is there's not a single thing that you find in this narrative that's going to question anything about anything. In other words, it's entirely and absolutely consistent with all the rest of Scripture. doesn't say anything that's going to cause any doctrine that we have and understand to be questioned by one iota. What I believe is this, is it was there originally that somebody screwed up along the way, just like people do. And you and I are having to deal with it now 2,000 years down the road. But let me just tell you this again. It is, it is so consistent with everything that's here. It doesn't call to question anything. So let's read it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, uh, they said to, her, to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. He might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him. Uh, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, uh, and from now on, sin no more. Doesn't that jive with 
everything that you know that Scripture teaches. I mean, do you see any problem with that at all? Uh, I hope not. Uh, but again, you need to understand, I probably, maybe I said some things already this morning that you just don't like. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got that idea that I just want to be a mushroom who sits in the dark and I don't want to know about any of this kind of stuff. But you need to understand my job is to prepare you as best as I can to live your life in this world for Jesus Christ. That means you need to know these things. It's important for you to know these things. Because the last thing you want to do is be surprised by someone who knows more about it than you do. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He's already been confronted by the Pharisees and they're demanding that he stop teaching. They've threatened him. So what does he do? Early the next morning, remember they're still at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Early the next morning, what does he do? Does he go hide in some corner? Or does he keep silent all day? Does he sneak off like a snake in the grass? No. He picks up where he left off the day before. He returns back to the temple and he begins to teach the people. We're going to see this pattern reflected over and over down through the history, beginning with the apostles. You know, the, the apostles will be threatened in the same manner by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rest of the Sanhedrin. Very similar circumstances. And every time they get released, miraculously, they immediately return back to where they were and pick up where they left off. When they're brought before the council, Peter and the rest of the apostles, when they were told that they were no longer, they were charged no longer to preach or teach in the name of Jesus, this is what they said. We must obey God rather than men. How many church leaders down through the generations have shared and carried that same mantle? I think one of the saddest things about the church today is the vast majority of people know nothing at all about Reformation history. And unfortunately, very often, sometimes when they do know a little bit, then they don't know what they really do need to know about it. But I just want to remind us this morning, but this tradition, just as we've seen with Jesus and with the apostles, when they're told they can't preach, they can't teach in the name of Christ, and, and they can't preach and teach the gospel, that there have been people who have stood up and done it nonetheless. It's exactly what 
John Wycliffe and John Huss and Martin Luther and John Calvin experienced in the Reformation. They were told by the church to shut up and go away. And they refused to do that. They refused to be silent, just as Jesus and the apostles refused to be silent. The other morning, I, you know, one, I have a kind of a tradition that, you know, the first thing I do when I come into the office every morning, I scripture read and I pray, you know, stuff like that. But on Monday mornings, I always go to the bank as soon as the bank opens. So anyway, I went to the bank on Monday morning. I come back here and I pull up in the parking lot here and I'm looking down at the other end of the fellowship hall on the driveway. There's something laying there and it's a substantial size. Not sure what in the world it is. So I start walking down there, and what it was was a gopher turtle that had been obviously crawling across the curb. And once he got to the curb, it flipped him over, and he was laying on his back, and he couldn't ride himself. And so I picked him up, you know, being the creature-loving person that I am. I picked him up, and I put, I put him in the grass. Then I went on about my business, went on to the bank. You know, I don't, wasn't gone that long. I came back. And I looked down there, and he was still sitting there. And I went back an hour later, and he was still sitting there. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is going on here? And I went back an hour later, and he was gone. So he obviously eventually walked off. But it's like, man, given the opportunity, you would think that he would have been running. <laughs> You know, maybe he was so disoriented or whatever laying on his back that he didn't know what to do anymore or, or, or whatever. But I, I looked at him, I wonder sometimes if we are not like that. That God has taken us, we're laying on our back, we're, we're, we're helpless, we're hopeless and whatever. And he sets us on our feet and, and, and very often we don't do much at all but sit. I want to remind us this morning, we are called to go. And you can't go if you lay on your back, paralyzed. God has set us on our feet. He calls every one of us to share what we know with other people. All of us, not just some of us, not just one or two of us. The job of evangelism is my job, but the job of evangelism is all of our jobs. Every one of us. No one is exempt from it. So I want to remind us of that this morning. Don't be like a tortoise laying on the back of your shell. Let me just tell you something. The Lord will give you opportunities to share with other people. You need to be sensitive to that, and you need to hear, and you need to see when it happens. I know most of you are afraid to say anything because you're afraid you're going to say the wrong 
thing. And let me tell you something, if you do it very often, you will sometimes say the wrong thing. Or you may think you said the wrong thing. But just remember this, that God is the one who's superintending all of this. He's part of the picture always. And his will and purpose will be accomplished in the end. May not be what we think it's going to be. Maybe not be what we want. It may surprise the mess out of us and be something far better than we ever contemplated. We have a message that this world has always desperately needed. We have a message that this world as it is today, even more than maybe in past years, needs to hear. And not only hear, but see reflected in the manner in which we live our life. Very often today, I think Christians almost just kind of blend in with everybody else. And there's kind of a place for that, as long as we understand that there's boundaries. We have to rub elbows with the world. And, 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 and if you don't want to share the gospel, don't want to have opportunities to share the gospel, just don't rub your elbows with the world at all. Isolate yourself from the world. But unless you're the person that thinks they're able to do that, which you cannot do, none of us can actually do that, God will give you opportunities. And we need to trust in him to speak in us and through us. Well, the Pharisees think that they finally have Jesus in a place where he has no wiggle worm at all. Wiggle room at all, not worm. Because of this. Because they know that they are under Roman rule and the Romans alone could condemn anyone to death in Roman-occupied lands. In other words, the Jewish authorities had no authority, no power to condemn anyone to death. So they know that if Jesus does anything here, then he's going to get in trouble with the Romans. In other words, if he encourages that this woman be stoned to death at this point, then he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. But they also know this, that the, the Mosaic law demands that, that this woman caught in adultery is stoned to death. So they think they've got Jesus in a bind with no wiggle worm room at all. Sorry. But... They obviously don't know who they're really dealing with. Sometimes we might think that we have God between a rock and a hard place. And let me tell you, every time you're going to come out on the other end and realize that was far from true. Jesus does the unexpected. 
Well, some things should really come to mind when we first start looking at this. And one of that is, let me see, adultery, that means a man and a woman. Here's the woman. Where's the man? I mean, see, if these guys were even interested, really, in applying the Mosaic law, both would be brought, not just the woman, but the man as well. It takes two people to commit adultery. Without those two people, it cannot happen. So you can understand just from that simple truth that these guys were not interested in what was right or wrong or the will of God. The thing was they hated Jesus and they were willing to bend and twist and and whatever as much of anything and everything as they had to to get rid of him. These were supposed to be the experts in the law, the lovers of the law. And they wanted to selectively apply it. Reality is this, it very well could be that she committed adultery with one of the Pharisees because this kind of immorality ran amok among them. Quite likely, these same guys that were willing to condemn her were doing the same sorts of things. Now, you've heard me say this before. There's a sense in which I've seen this in reality. You've heard me say this a number of times that I have, I wish, I wish I had never had in my whole lifetime ever had the experience of being involved in disciplining a believer. But I, we've been involved in just a f- few small cases here. At Presbytery, I've been involved in far more than I would like to even remember. And you heard me say this umpteen times, and that is that the majority of those cases have to do with sexual immorality on the part of teaching elders, pastors. Way more common even in the PCA than the average person in the pews would even think for a minute. The thing that is most surprising about all of it is this. Is I have sat with close friends of mine. And we have made judgments. We have made determinations because God has called us to do that in these circumstances. And I have voted to have men defrocked because of immoral behavior on their part. But sadly, very often, a lot more than you would think, those men that voted right along with me to discipline a particular person were later caught doing the same thing or something worse themselves. So we need to be very careful about doing these sorts of things. In other words, and it's true, it's so easy for us to see heinous sin in the lives of other people that when it comes to us, we, maybe we know it's sin, but we have a reason for it. We have some explanation we can come up with. But I just, I just use that as an example. Maybe I use it way too much. You're going to lose complete faith in the pastorate before long if I keep talking about this all the time. 
because I want to say this as well this morning, that there are the majority of the guys that I have known and worked with and studied with and, and, and examined people with and all of that are dear and loving brothers in Christ, and I would stake my life on their salvation. But we, these things like sh- this should not surprise us because people are not perfect. There's no perfect person in this room right now. We all have besetting sins. And this is one of the things I want to focus on this morning. And that is I want to ask you what your besetting sins are. What are those sins that just seem to keep raising their ugly head every now and then in your life? And when they first appear, you don't even recognize them. What are the sins that you struggle with? And don't tell me you don't have any, because if you do, I'm going to tell you that you have one that I know of, and that is you are a liar. We all have besetting sins. We all have sins that we struggle with more than others. And one of the things that we always have to remember when we're talking about sin is we can't just say, oh, That's just the way it is. Jesus would not have us have that attitude towards sin, vestige of sin that remains in us. We are in the business of putting it to death. Not living with it, but running away from it. Not accepting it as just the normal thing but actually engaging in killing it in striking it with a death blow. Jesus started writing in the sand here, and it's amazing at all the explanations people have come up with what he was writing. Let me tell you, we have not a clue what Jesus was writing. If he was writing anything, maybe he was just doodling in the sand. Who knows? But no one knows what it was. But there are people that are very willing to speculate that what Jesus, I've read the commentaries this week, you know, they say specifically that Jesus, what he was doing was he was writing down the crimes and the offenses of all of those Pharisees who had brought this woman before them, and he was revealing their own sins to them, and that's why in the end they couldn't say anything, and they left. What John Calvin wrote was this, Christ rather intended by doing nothing, in other words, it was like he was ignoring these guys, to show how unworthy they were of being heard, just as if any person while another was speaking to him were to draw lines on the wall or turn his back or show by any other sign that he's not attending to what is said. In other words, just flatly ignoring what these guys are talking about. Let me tell you, I I love John Calvin, but I'm not going to go there with him. (laughs) He could be right, but he could be very wrong. (laughs) This is one of those realities where you just have to say, nobody knows. What was Jesus? Nobody knows. Scriptures don't tell us what he wrote. Scriptures don't even tell us what he was writing. He was just playing with his finger in the sand. Who knows?
The only thing we know is that one by one, by their actions, their own volition, they walked out in silence. In other words, what he did was sufficient to stop the conversation dead. Now, I would like to think that they all left as they were individually convicted of their own sin. And that's a very good possibility. And maybe that's true for some, but not true for others. Maybe the last one that was there just did it because everybody else did, and he didn't want to be there by himself. Who knows? You see, this is one of those areas where people very often are very willing to speculate that we need to let Scripture speak for itself. We need not to read into it. We need not to write out of it. And, and we need to be able to say this to people. I do not know when you don't. Well, we know this, that that whatever's going on here with a lot of these guys would at the very least short-lived. If they were convicted of their sin and whatever, and that's why they left, then it didn't last very long. Maybe they were just, they just didn't know what to say. (laughs) It's probably more likely. And we know this. That this won't be the end of the confrontation that Jesus has with these fellows. It's only the beginning. That he's going to be confronted with them over and over and over again. And the message for them over and over again is cease and desist. Shut up, please. Don't speak. Don't teach. And we know that the time will come where they will think that they have actually bested Jesus. When they've demanded they be crucified, and he in fact is. They will be emboldened. And we see that reflected in something that comes very soon after that, and that is the stoning of Deacon Stephen. They didn't stone Jesus, but they stoned Stephen. Well, there are some Christians who believe that when you come to faith, then you don't sin anymore. I mean, there's a, you know, if you look back through church history, you're going to find a record of people who actually believe that. And, so they, they, and they also believe this, that, that if therefore, if that's true, if their sin is found out in you, then you're not qualified to be a believer. You're not qualified to be part of the church. It's what's called perfectionism. Some people have believed that you can actually reach this point of perfectionism where you no longer sin in this world, in this life. And I'm going to tell you this morning that that is heretical, that is heresy, that is not in the Word of God. 
Now, we struggle with sin until the time that we die. And let me tell you, it's important that we struggle with sin until the time that we die, that we never become complacent, that we never just come to the point of saying, well, it's there, there's nothing I can do about it, I've tried to put it to death, but it's still living and breathing and whatever, so I'm just going to give up and give in. No. But you think that you may think that leaves us in a very precarious situation where we maybe have some ground for questioning whether we're saved or not. And maybe there's some place for carrying that, but I don't think that's what the average person really needs to hear and to know. It's important for us to understand that there is a sense in which you and I are right now sinless in the eyes of God. But I want to remind us this morning, it's not because of anything that we've done, it's what has been done on our behalf by Jesus Christ himself and by the Holy Spirit who has brought forth the grace of God and applied it specifically and particularly to you. There's a theological word, word called sanctification, and it, has, it simply means to be set apart as holy. And sometimes we talk about positional sanctification as opposed to progressive. There's a sense the positional sanctification is, is the fact that because of our position in Christ, there is a sense in which you and I are already holy, absolutely perfect in Christ. Because when the Father looks upon us, he looks upon him. But there is a sense, in another sense in which we understand this, that sin is still living and breathing in us. That there's a process called progressive sanctification. Whereby we are growing in Christ and we are dying more and more to sin and its influence and its, and its uh, control over us. Now let me, let me just say this to you. Maybe there's some people in this room right now who believe that church people, that Christians should be perfect people at this point. If you believe that, I want to ask you a question. If that is true, why? Why would Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, give instructions to the church of how to deal with this kind of stuff when it happens? What we call church discipline which always has a goal, and it's never to demean people, to, to tear people down and all that. It always has as its goal, and this is what the passion behind it needs to be, to restore brothers and sisters to the right understanding and application of the gospel. Let me tell you, church discipline done wrongly, and let me tell you, unfortunately, there's a good percentage of the time it's done very wrongly. 
comes across as a bunch of people saying to someone else, look what you're doing, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. You are uh, defaming the name of Christ and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would never do what you're doing. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a church that is honest with each other about their own besetting sin. And let me just tell you, if we would do what Jesus tells us to do, we would almost never, ever see the church leadership get involved in anything like this. Very often, church leadership gets involved in it because the people who ought to be involved in it refuse to be. That's not my job. That's why we have elders. Let them deal with the hard stuff. First time I ever applied this was, was a man that I just, I was convicted. He was, just, he was, a, he was a believer guy that I knew before he became a believer, became a believer, but I didn't see much of Christ in his life. As a matter of fact, he worked the same place I did, and he had the worst reputation of everybody in the whole place. People hated this guy because he was so nasty and mean-spirited. And what I'm telling you is when he became a believer, I didn't see much of that reflected in the manner in which he approached his job and the people he dealt with. So I was convicted by God to talk to this guy. And let me tell you, it's the last thing on the world Keith wanted to do. I didn't want to do it. And my whole thing was, God, can't you find somebody else, please? But I couldn't wiggle out of it. And so I called him, and we talked. And let me tell you what he said on the other end. It was kind of heated at point. You know what he said to me at the end? He said, you really must care about me to be, able, be willing to do this. Not what I expected at all. We cannot wallow in sin as believers. We just cannot do it. It's our natural tendency of that, that's, that sinful nature within us to encourage us to continue to do that. But we cannot be satisfied where we're at. Every one of us has a long way to go. Every one of us has a lot of growing to do. And we need to be a help to one another in it. Not a harm. We cannot give up to indwelling sin within us. We must not let it have its way. It will drive us apart. Do you understand that there's a sense in which every one of us is a battlefield? You may not feel that way, but the reality is you are because there's this old self and there's this new self existing in the same person. And they are absolutely 100%, 180 degrees opposite in opposition to one another. They have next to nothing in common. 
The Pharisees believed themselves to be God's appointed sin police. I've known people in the church who believe the same thing about themselves. You ever known someone, they talk about other people's sin all the time. The strange thing about it is you never hear them talk about their own. Look what so-and-so's doing. I can't believe that person said that. I can't believe that person did that. And they share it with other people. Some of you are continuing in sin. And you know it. And you've just kind of given up and given in. You've resigned yourself to the idea that it's part of you and it's going to be part of you until you die or until the Lord comes back. Just the way I am. Just how I am. I just need to learn to live with it. And other people around me, they need to learn to live with it too. Jesus didn't allow the woman to leave without saying something to her. And what he said to her was this. Go and sin. God is saying the very same thing to you and to me this morning. What we're going to do right now is I'm going to give you just a minute of silent confession. And after that, the praise team is going to come and lead us in our final hymn.